Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to History Hack. This is your girl Charlie here today, hanging out with the boss lady. Hi, Alex. How are we doing? Hello. I'm well, I'm not good. I've got another stinking cold and woe is me, but this is going to be fun. This is fun now. That's no good. But at least you've got a fun guest joining us today. Who have we got? <laughs> We've got our very own Kit Chapman with us today. Dr. Kit Chapman, author of Super Heavy, which was a thing about a thing to do with the periodic table, but that normal people could read without crying. Mm. Uh, and his new book, which he's currently like crapping himself over every individual paragraph now, aren't you, Kit? Uh, is all about how Formula One has changed the world. Um, with its science and stuff but we're not here for that today we're here because in true kit style kit wants to have a rant don't you kit i do i want to have a pop at the nobel prizes which today are being awarded in sweden so right now in sweden there's a load of people crawling up each other's asses because they're getting one of these medal things today um and you're going to tell them why basically why it's not all that it sounds aren't you i am it's not all that in a bag of potato chips um as they say And it's got a very strange, murky history. There are a lot of people that have been excluded from it for no particular reason other than gender or race. Um, And we're just going to take it down a peg or two. Let's do it. Let's do it. We love doing crap like this on History Hacks. So start with, because I'm not actually sure how it all started. At the very beginning, who is Alfred Nobel and why does he establish the Nobel Prizes? Alfred Nobel was a scientist. He was a chemist and he was an inventor. He was Swedish. Um, He was born in 1833. He dies 1896. And he's most well known for inventing dynamite. Um, But there are other things that he invents as well. The first thing he actually invents um, is a gas meter for English homes in 1857. But his family were quite wealthy and they decided they wanted to profit from the Crimean War. And afterwards, they found it very difficult to move away from munitions. Now, Nobel was not really into that. He did own 90 munitions factories but um he was he always insisted that he was about uh, safe um, use of explosives and so he tries to create safe blasting ex- equipment because at the time uh, mining and blasting obviously we're in the industrial revolution it's happening an awful lot it's incredibly dangerous you can't just carry around the materials and he wanted a safe way to move around uh, nitroglycerin which is this incredibly powerful explosive 
And so he invents, uh, invents dynamite. He later on invents a blasting cap. And then he goes on to envelop, envelop, um, develop gelignite and also a precursor to cordite. Um, and this is making him an awful lot of money. Um, he actually moves over to France and he's living very, very happily there. But in 1888, his brother Ludwig dies and the newspapers get it wrong and they erroneously report that Alfred had died. And so he gets to read his own um, obituaries and what he sees terrifies him. It's like a, an Ebenezer Scrooge moment. The headline was the merchant of death is dead. Um, and that Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich finding ways to find uh, ways to kill people more faster than ever before, died yesterday. Um, and he was terrified by this. He was looking at the front pages saying that he was this evil man. And so he decided to convert about 95 percent of his assets um, into funding a series of prizes that would benefit humanity. And they were the prizes in physics, chemistry physiology and medicine, literature, and peace. Uh, later on, um, there is an economics prize that's also added, but that's the Memorial Economics Prize. It's not one of the original Nobels. Now, he's living in, in France, and he actually has to flee France because he is accused of high treason for selling munition inventions to Italy. So he moves to San Remo, and he dies there. And his family all think they're going to make millions because you know he is a wealthy, wealthy man. And they are completely shocked when they discover that 95% of his money, you know, it's like donating to a cat charity or something. It's all gone into these prizes. So the first prizes are awarded in 1901. And, uh, and we go on from there. And tell you what, I'll give you a prize if either of you can tell me anyone who won a Nobel Prize in that first year. John? I'm going to <laughs> Marconi's not a bad shout. No, Marconi never won one. Um, we do have a Jacobus. That's the closest. We've got Jacobus van Hoff. He's got a little uh, apostrophe in the middle of his name. Um, so you've got to kind of give it a little tick. Um, who was on chemistry. That's chirality. We have William Rutgen, uh, who was the discoverer of x-rays. So that's pretty worth it. Um, Emil von Bechrig, um, who was for diphtheria vaccines. Uh, in literature, it was Sully Prudholm, um, that well-known author. <laughs> and Henri Donat uh, and Frédéric Passy, uh, they won jointly for peace. Uh, Donat was uh, the founding member of the Red Cross and Passy was a peace advocate across Europe. Gosh. So it sounds like Alfred Nobel, decent guy. Yeah, I think so. He certainly, he's shocked that this idea that he's a bad guy. I think that's the thing. He, he sort of looks at it and goes, this is just not what I'm, I want my legacy to be. And so he creates these prizes. The idea is that each prize is given uh, to a person who has benefited humanity the most in that particular year. But as we go on, we'll discover that never really happens. Yeah, right. so the intentions are good, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, certainly anyone who's giving up 95% of, of his extraordinary wealth to fund these prizes probably has the best of intentions. Mm, okay, I'm going digging for the beef now, right? Who decides who wins a Nobel? And what do you get if you win, other than the well, accolade? Well, you get some money, which is always good. And how much actually changes depending on how well the, the fund has been doing that particular year. Usually it's around about one million US dollars and it's divided up uh, by, between the winners. So you don't all get a million. Um, you can tell 
you get a medal uh, with a big picture of Alfred Nobel on the front of it. The back actually depends on which subject you win. It varies. Um, and it's always some sort of weird semi sort of Greco-Roman homoerotic pose um, of some description, depending on which one. Um, but the people who actually decide it for the majority of prizes, with one exception, is the Swedish Academy of Sciences. And they're based in Stockholm. And what happens is there is a panel that is uh, that is appointed. You last on the panel typically three years and you sit down there on the on literally the morning of awarding the uh, the award and you discuss with the panel who's going to get it. So there is this complete mystery. But the actual sort of search for the next winner really begins before the previous people win. Um, so each year there'll be a nominations section uh, and basically anyone who's won the Nobel Prize and anyone who's considered a high up member of science is asked to nominate who they think should win. And so they compile this list. And this list is kept very, very secret um, for at least 50 years. So we can only look at back at uh, what's been going on in the 1970s and who's been voting for who at the moment. That's as far as the records are opened up. But you can see who voted for, uh, you know, Jacobus van der Hoff, van Hoff um, in the first round. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. I always find it fascinating. There was one guy um, in 1939, he voted Adolf Hitler for the Peace Prize, um, mm. which was... <laughs> which is apparently a sort of a protest vote. Um, but uh, it's, it's always really interesting. From there, uh, there is kind of a screening process. So in the old days, people would just look at this list and they would know because it was quite a tight-knit circle. One of the big problems you get with um, the Nobel Prize is this idea of essentially white men win it and then white men tend to give it to white men that they know. There's a very, so sort of, it becomes more and more insular. And as you're adding more people who've won the prize to this pool, it becomes more and more insular. It doesn't broaden out at all. But um, the, uh, the people who win um, have to be screened these days. One, to make sure that they actually did the thing they said they did, um, which sometimes isn't the case. Sometimes they need to give credit to someone else. Uh, and the second thing is to make sure they're not a bit of a wrong one. And occasionally people have missed out on the Nobel Prize just for being a dick. Um, I mean, there was a, a very famous chemist called uh, G.N. Lewis, Gilbert Newton Lewis, and he never won the Nobel Prize. He was an asshole. Um, the guy was renowned for when someone was giving a chemistry lecture, Gilbert Lewis would sit there with his cigar. And once it, the person had finished, Lewis would light the cigar. And for the time it took him to finish smoking the cigar, he would just roast them. He'd just say, your chemistry's crap, your crap, everything you stand for is crap. He would just go at them. And so nobody liked G.N. Lewis. He was renowned to be prickly. So he invents, well, not invents, but discovers the covalent bond, which is incredibly important in chemistry. He never wins the prize, but one of his great rivals does. And we don't really know what happens next. We know that he meets that rival for lunch um, and the rival's kind of going, hey, guess what? I brought my prize along with me. Um, <laughs> Jen Lewis goes back to the lab and there is an accident involving cyanide and he doesn't come out. Um, and no one's quite sure whether or not he committed suicide or whether or not he just wasn't paying attention. Um, but uh, and that was the end of Jen Lewis. Wow. Gosh. So it matters a lot to some people if they win. 
Absolutely. I mean, this is the culmination of your lifetime's work in some cases. Now, you hinted at something there. You said that most of the uh, awards are given out by by the Swedish institution, but you mentioned that there's one that isn't. What what's going on there? I get a sense there's something happening here. There, there is. So the Peace Prize is not given out by Sweden. The Peace Prize is given out by Norway. Why? <laughs> it's, one of the, it's one of the quirks of the Nobel Prize, uh, and it's a very good question. Why Norway? Um, the answer is nobody knows. Not even the Nobel Prize Committee knows why Alfred Nobel insisted that Norway gives the Peace Prize. Um, it's worth pointing out that Norway and Sweden were unified until about 1905. So he might have been trying to sort of give both sides of his country, you know, a fair crack at it. Uh, it might be that at the time, Norway was very well known for diplomacy. Um, or he might, and this is, this is genuinely from the, uh, from the Nobel Prize themselves, he might have been a fan of one of uh, Norway's writers, a guy called um, Bjornsten Bjorniston, uh, who won the prize in 1903. And just because he loved that guy's work, he might have decided to give the Peace Prize to Norway. But the truth is, nobody has a clue why Norway gives the Peace Prize. They just do. Does Norway know? Norway doesn't know. Norway doesn't know and the Nobel Committee doesn't know. But it's now a tradition. And in fact, if you go to Oslo um, on the harbour front, they've actually got uh, a building specifically for giving out the Nobel Peace Prize. So they kind of make a big deal of it. Um, and there's the equivalent building, of course, in, in Stockholm, uh, in Gamlestan, uh, which is the old town of Stockholm. Very, very fancy building. And that's where they give the, uh, the other prizes as well. I just so... <clears throat> evidently we don't have world peace so no one's been that good at it have they um I, so what kind of people have won it i know that arthur henderson got it didn't he the first labor mp got it in like 1930 for some reason you you get a very i mean the nobel peace prize is a very mixed bag so this year it was two journalists who were reporting on uh, on sort of horrific abuses that were happening in their country one in the philippines um previously it's been people who i mean the Nobel Prize is always very contentious because it's such this sort of general thing. Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 2009, and nobody has a clue why. Barack Obama doesn't know why he won it. Um, in 2012, the, United, the European Union won the Peace Prize. Um, and this is one of the quirks of the Peace Prize. All the other prizes are given to individuals. Organizations can win the Peace Prize. Perhaps the most contentious ones, uh, in 1994, Yasser Arafat won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, a man not best known for his, uh, his work with peace. In 1973, uh, it went to uh, one of the Vietnamese leaders and to Henry Kissinger. Um, so you get all kinds of very, very sort of people that you wouldn't normally associate with the word peace uh, winning the Peace Prize. Um, it's always fascinating, though, to crack these open and try and work out sort of who's been nominated and who hasn't. The big omission is probably Mahatma Gandhi. He never won the Peace Prize. So you mentioned, obviously, we, we think there were good intentions for starting off with these Nobel Prizes, um, but the rules about them have changed, haven't they, since he died? They have. So he gave these sort of opaque instructions, and a lot of people will argue these rules, some of these rules never really existed, uh, this, this kind of rule of three idea, but it's very much convention now. So the first rule is that you have to be alive to receive the Nobel Prize. Um, one of the people that is often mentioned as, as sort of missing out on the Nobel Prize is someone um, 
it's to do with DNA. It's Rosalind Franklin. And Rosalind Franklin was without question heavily involved in DNA. She had her work nicked by uh, Wilkins and he gave it to um, uh, the uh, to 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 buggers who uh, whose name Watson and Crick um, almost almost forgot them. And um, and they went and discovered DNA, the double helix. She could not have won the Nobel Prize for DNA because the year that they won it, she was already dead. Um, she passed away. Um, so I always I don't worry too much about that one. But there have been um, posthumous Nobel Prizes awarded. Um, uh, Eric Carfelt in uh, 1931 for literature. Um, the posthumous Nobel Peace Prize in 1961 was given to the UN Secretary General, General um, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the youngest ever. In 1996, um, economist William Vickery died before the presentation ceremony. So technically he, he got it and then he died before he could collect it. And Ralph Steinman, the most recent one in 2011, uh, won the Medicine Nobel because the committee wasn't aware that Ralph Steinman was dead. Um, and they had they didn't know that. So uh, they, they, they couldn't retransend it. And that's another thing. Once you've been given a Nobel Prize, it cannot be taken away from you for no reason whatsoever. Even if it's discovered everything you've done is wrong, even if it's discovered that someone else did the work, it cannot. Or if be you're taken like Kevin you. Spacey. Just no exactly. If Kevin Spacey won the Peace Prize, it could never be taken away from him. That so that is his for life now. Um, the biggest shakeup probably 1969. That's the Nobel Prize for Economics that was introduced. Um, but in 1968, the Rule of Three was introduced, and this is a a big issue for science because it's very rare that only three people are involved in a discovery these days. Discoveries take huge teams, but the rule is only three people can split the Nobel Prize. And so you get very situ awkward situations where like four people have probably done the work equally um, and one of them is just going to miss out. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's bonkers, but that's how they do it. Um, also, it's not just work in the past year anymore. So if you look at the most recent Nobel Prizes, typically it's at least a decade since the work was done, usually two or three decades. Um, before they're given a Nobel Prize. It's sort of a lifetime achievement award now, um, rather than, hey, you've done some really good work recently. There are exceptions. Um, recently, there was some work uh, looking at gravitational waves in physics. Uh, that was given basically the next year uh, to Kip Thorne and, uh, and company. So it can happen that they get it very quickly, but usually you're talking at least a decade. And some people have had to wait sort of 40 or 50 years wondering, am I going to get the Nobel Prize? I know I've done the work. Is it going to happen? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Oh my goodness. Now you know, let's have some let's have some name dropping here. You know <laughs> several people who've actually won this award personally. I do. How how does their life change with this? Because it's pretty um, big. So it, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, it's it's sort of chalk and cheese. So uh, I spoke to Ben Feringa. Um, basically the day after he won the Nobel Prize. He's, he works on nanomachines. Um, he's a scientist in the Netherlands. And we were chatting and I said, you know, what happened? 
And he said, I, I got the phone call from the committee. Um, and first of all, I believed it was a practical joke. I mean, that's a very common response. People think it's, you know, let's put on a Swedish accent and say you've got the Nobel Prize. Um, what they usually do is they pass you on to someone that you know, um, and, you know, from Sweden, who says, this is real, calm down, you have won the Nobel Prize. Then they'll get a Nobel laureate, someone who's already won to phone you up, and usually the conversation goes, your life is just about to change. You're not going to be able to lecture anymore. You're not going to be able to go anywhere, you know, in, in quiet. It, usually in public, it's fine because most people don't know Nobel Prize winners. There are exceptions to that. Um, so Ada Yonat was a scientist who won it for the uh, anal analysis of the ribosome, um, part of the human cell. And she is Israeli. She is instantly recognizable in Israel. She gets mob mobbed in, you know, in supermarkets. She's told people that sort of put, say, no, no, you go first in the queue, all that kind of stuff. But you, you can't do what you normally do anymore. A lot of people actually almost retire, semi-retire, and um, start taking on general lectureships. Um, a guy I know called Fraser Stoddart, again, casual name dropping. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Most people have no idea who Fraser Stoddart is, but um, he's very well known in chemistry. And he has basically for the past year um, just traveled. Um, and, well, it's since he's won the Nobel Prize, so it's past, past four or five years now. Um, and he just goes around the world. He says that he actually probably does more. It works out that he's still traveling at 60 miles an hour, even if, even if he's sleeping um, because of the amount of flights he does. And so he goes over to China, he goes and gives talks in Saudi Arabia and things like that. Everything is paid for for him. You know, he lives the lap of luxury. Um, the other issue that everyone has is because you've won the Nobel Prize, people, people sort of think you're smart, which is perfectly fair. But they forget that you're an expert in a very specific area. So I know people who have basically been asked to sort of, you know, can, can you predict the future? Can you tell me what's going on with Apple? What stock should I buy? And these guys aren't economists. They're, they're scientists. They've just been in the lab. Um, and so they find themselves being asked all manner of questions by pesky journalists like myself. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it gets irritating at times. Um, another guy I know, uh, Stefan Hell. So he did his work on, um, it's not quite the microscope. He broke something called the diffraction barrier. So you can see things far smaller than you think would be possible. And the reason he did it was that he doesn't like microscopes. He hates microscopes. He thinks they're boring. The problem is because he won the microscopy Nobel Prize in, in, for chemistry, everyone shows him this microscope collection. And he's just like, I don't care. Please stop showing me your microscopes. I don't want to see any. Um, so you get very strange situations like that. Um, and of course, you're asked to write books and things like that. You're asked to go on TV shows. Um, a guy I know called George Smoot. Um, George is a very eccentric character. He, he's best known for the Big Bang. And he used to love the Big Bang Theory. And he, <laughs> he was telling me, I was sitting with him in a beer garden in southern Germany um, in the Alps. Um, and I... I, I didn't know him before then. We actually literally crossed paths. We were sitting opposite each other on a table in a beer hall and we recognized each other. Um, <laughs> so weird, but that's what happened. Um, and he got in, he got on the Big Bang Theory. He got a, a guest spot and he got it through Beyonce Knowles. Um, so Beyonce's assistant arranged for him to go on the Big Bang Theory. Um, and then he went on to things like, are you smarter than a 10 year old? And he won the million pound prize and things like that and gave it to charity. So his life has just changed dramatically. Um, 
And that's the kind of weirdness you get with the Nobel Prize these days. It's, it's one of those things that it's no longer just a casual prize that you add onto your CV and, and a nice bit of money. It is a life changing moment. Going back in history, um, there are some cases where the Nobel Prize has had profound effects. Um, one of the guys I, I absolutely adore, I've written his biography, is Glenn Seaborg. And Glenn Seaborg's uh, family was Swedish in origin. They'd moved over to Michigan, uh, a place called Ishwaming, uh, up in northern Michigan. And um, he knew a little bit of Swedish because that's what they spoke at home. And so he thought, I'm going to impress the King of Sweden when I collect my medal and I will give my speech in Swedish. <laughs> what he forgot, of course, is that his family were immigrants. They were peasants from the countryside. And so he basically spoke Swedish in this terrible Wurzel accent. It kind of <laughs> everyone was like, oh, my God, what kind of Swedish is this? Um, <laughs> So it was right. It was just with this sort of thick, uh, you know, U.R. kind of accent, uh, whatever the Swedish equivalent is. Um, Richard Feynman is another guy. That I um, He's a very, very famous physicist. He did a lot of work and uh, wrote a lot of books. When he won the prize, he decided that he was going to show how he showed his contempt, essentially, for the idea of awards and Nobel Prizes. And he became convinced that he was going to. So when you get the prize from the king of Sweden, um, you basically walk up the. Uh, the steps to the king and then you walk back down the steps keeping your eye on the king you never turn your back on the king and Richard Feynman trained himself to hop on one leg down steps so that he could <laughs> so that he could depart in the in the least elegant fashion possible um, I think he chickened out at the last minute but um that you do get some eccentrics when it comes to collecting the Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, my gosh. Is it like an Oscar? And well, no, yeah, I mean, it, it is the science Oscar. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. As in the, the pressure afterwards to better it or to equal it. Is that a thing? I think that there is. I mean, there are certain people, I think the pressure goes once you've won it. And because generally people work on one specific area, it's very unlikely to win two. Um, it's not unheard of, uh, as we'll go into, um, but uh, but usually you're only ever going to get one in your career. Um, so that kind of relieves the pressure. There are people who are desperate to win it. Um, I know one person, I can't say where, I can't say who, um, who every year he trashes his lab when he finds out he hasn't won. He has a history. <laughs> Um, and sort of his postdocs kind of dread the day because he's not going to win. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> it's not the kind of area that, that wins. Um, that's the other thing with Nobel Prizes. Because the committee is selected from Sweden, typically the, the committee favours 
the kind of science that's done in Sweden. And they've got a lot of biochemists and things like that. So anything that's kind of biology related often gets grouped into the chemistry Nobel Prize because Alfred Nobel did not create a biology section. Okay, is there an overachieving git bag who's got, who got more than one? I mean, I hate to think what this guy that smashes up his lab's response will be to someone <laughs> getting one a second time. But are there people out there that do have more than one? There are. Uh, there aren't many. Um, there are a couple. Um, so the um, the other thing is there's lots of people whose family members win. So to, there are Nobel Prizes that kind of run in the family. But uh, in terms of people who have won it more than once, does anyone want to have a, including organisations, because uh, we've got the Peace Prize, does anyone want to have a guess who's, who is the, the all-time leader in terms of winning Nobel Prizes? Someone like the World Health Organisation. You're, you're very close. Amnesty International. Ooh, they have won it, but uh, it's actually the United Nations. Okay. So the United Nations have won 12 Nobel Prizes. Oh. In terms of specific organisations, it's the Red Cross. The Red Cross have won three. Um, in terms of individuals, though, because that's what we really care about. So the first person to win two Nobel Prizes was, go on, Alex, you should know this one. Oh, Marie Curie. It was Marie Curie. And Marie Curie is the only scientist who has won uh, a Nobel Prize in two different fields. So she won in chemistry and she won in physics. Uh, only person to do that. Um, there are two people who have won Nobels in one subject. Uh, one is Frederick Sanger in chemistry, uh, who, worked, uh, who did his work, first of all, for demonstrating the structure of insulin, uh, which is really important for diabetes, obviously, and sugar. Um, and the other one for DNA-based pairs. So he was a very, very talented scientist. The Sanger Institute is, uh, is huge. And in fact, I think people from the Sanger Institute have won Nobel Prizes. Uh, the other one is physics, a guy called John Bardeen. Uh, he won for inventing the transistor and later for a theory about how superconductors work. The only person who has won uh, in a science area and a non-science area is a guy called Linus Powling. Uh, he won the chemistry prize and then he became an advocate for getting rid of nuclear weapons. And he won the peace prize for his campaigns to disarm and you know, prevent nuclear weapons. The nuclear one's really interesting as well because... There are several Nobel Prize winners who did work on the Manhattan Project, who did yeah. make nuclear stuff come together. And in fact, Otto Hahn won the Nobel Prize for nuclear fission. So we've got the case of someone winning a Nobel Prize for stopping other people who've won a Nobel Prize's invention. Um, the other case of that, um, as again, Alex will know very well, is a guy called Fritz Haber. Mm -hmm. And he won the Nobel Prize for um, the Haber brush process, which is used to feed people. It's, uh, it creates a, uh, uh, ammonia so that you can make fertilizer basically out of thin air um, and he was the father of chemical weapons and uh, we've had several Nobel Prizes uh, about people stopping chemical weapons most recently um, the OPCW the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons so that is a case of the Nobel being awarded to someone uh, to, a, to a Nobel Prize winner's invention um, but Linus Powling very strange guy um, he won the chemistry prize and the peace prize and then, again, this is the classic case of not trusting everything just because someone's won the Nobel Prize. Linus Pauling went a little bit bonkers and he became convinced that vitamin C would cure everything. Um, and I'm sure people have heard vitamin C for the common cold, all that kind of stuff. It's bollocks. There's no real strong evidence for it. It's just Linus Pauling went all in on vitamin C. You know, <laughs> if it was the vitamin C stocks, he was buying it. Um, and because he had the Nobel Prize, everyone just believed him. Um, but we now know very clearly that it's just not the case. 
you mentioned families that some of them run in families the prize mm-hmm. yeah so uh, we have a couple of families the first ones actually were in the second during the first world war uh, it was an australian british family the braggs um so lawrence bragg and his dad william henry bragg uh, for x-ray analysis of crystal structures um but we have other cases as well um the mary uh, mary curie and her husband pierre won it together and then their daughter irene won it with her husband frederick so you've got a kind of a dynasty of Nobel Prizes there. Uh, Niels Bohr was another famous winner. who's a Danish scientist. And his son, Arge Bohr, also won the Nobel Prize. And most recently, um, you had Roger Kornberg win it. And his dad, Arthur, also won it. So surprisingly, it's, um, it's quite common for someone who is a child of a Nobel Prize winner to win the Nobel Prize themselves. I think we're going to get into why that's a bit controversial in a bit, aren't we? But before we, before we move on, just quickly, oldest and youngest winners. Oldest was John Goodenough. Uh, he won in 2019. Uh, he was aged 97 and he won for creating the lithium ion battery. So if you've ever used a, a mobile phone or a laptop, John Goodenough is the guy you should be thanking. And the youngest winner, I think everyone knows this one, uh, was Malala Yousafzai, who won when she was 17 uh, for the Peace Prize. Very well deserved. But has the prize ever gone to the wrong person? I mean, like in a just an administrative error or for a wrong discovery? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is, again, one of the big problems I have with the Nobel in that it can't be rescinded. So when someone's won it, they have won it for life. Um, there's so many examples. I'm just going to pick out a few of, uh, of, the, of the real sort of egregious ones. Uh, 1926, a guy called Johann Fibiger uh, was a doctor, and he won the prize in physiology and medicine for his discovery of a worm called Spiroptera carcinoma. And this was a worm that he was convinced caused cancer. Worms do not cause cancer. Um, It was almost immediately discovered that this was just not the case. Uh, He held his hands up and went, yeah, I'm wrong. Um, He'd already won the Nobel Prize. Nothing they could do about it. Um, Antonio Moniz, uh, in 1949, um, he won the prize for inventing the lobotomy. Oh, dear. And <laughs> as I'm sure most people know, uh, lobotomies are now banned outright around the world because they just don't work. Um, it's, it's a dehumanizing treatment that shouldn't, has no place in modern medicine. And yet, Guy had won the Nobel Prize for it. Um, my personal favorite of these, um, this is a story I've told several times, is a guy called Enrico Fermi in 1938. So he won the Nobel Prize for creating elements beyond uranium. He'd been doing some experiments uh, and he hadn't realized that what he'd actually discovered was nuclear fission. He'd actually been blowing his elements apart, an even bigger discovery. He won the Nobel Prize in November uh, 1938, the day after Kristallnacht in Germany. And his wife was Jewish and he was looking for a reason to get out of Italy. So his benefactor had been Benito Mussolini and he was looking for any kind of route out there. And when he won the Nobel Prize outright, um, he pawned his uh, everything that he was of value and basically told his family, we're going we're to go. Called up the government, called up Mussolini and said, I'm just going to head over to Sweden to collect my Nobel Prize, give a little lecture tour and then I'll be right back to Italy, I promise. And of course, what they did was they got on the first boat they could to America and fled. Um, so he survived and his wife and family survived Second World War. And he becomes very important, actually, in the Manhattan Project, uh, the nuclear bomb uh, project. Um, they survived purely because they won the Nobel Prize. 
while he's on on the boat across to the United States, he finds out about fission, which happened literally December 1938. Yeah, a month after he wins the Nobel Prize, he discovers he's been completely wrong the whole time, and so probably didn't uh, shouldn't have got the Nobel Prize in physics for that particular thing. Although the problem is Enrico Fermi was probably the greatest physicist of the 20th century. Albert Einstein thought Enrico Fermi was was everything. So. To say that he doesn't deserve the Nobel Prize is probably un- a bit harsh, but he definitely didn't deserve it for the one thing he got. And the really awkward thing is coming back to Glenn Seaborg and um, his partner, Edwin McMillan, when they were the Nobel Prize in 1951 for actually discovering elements beyond uranium, they kind of have, they can't word it the same because they can't give a Nobel Prize for something that's already won the Nobel Prize. How do they get around this? And so they kind of tweaked the wording. It's like, oh, for their experiments that they were doing on elements beyond. They were sort of just fudging it. But you have a situation there where essentially two different Nobel Prizes were given for the same thing when that really shouldn't have happened. (laughs) It's starting to unravel now, isn't it? We've gone from um, people smashing things up if they don't get one to, is it really that great? So... Hit us with some of the biggest controversies around the prize. I know you really don't like the exclusion that has happened over the years, uh, especially as far as women are concerned. Yeah, it just it just pisses me off. And if you want to have a look at bias, unconscious or otherwise, in science, um, there is no better illustration than the Nobel Prize. You stand an infinitely better chance of getting the Nobel Prize if you are a white man who lives in Europe or North America. That is just a fact. When you look at people who've won it, you know, when do you think uh, someone from China won the Nobel Prize first? A couple of years ago. Yeah, it was about six years ago. It was uh, Yo-Yo Tu for um, her work on malaria. Um, Think how many thousands of scientists are are currently working in, in China. There is just this very evident bias. So we do have big the controversies that people will talk about, you know, Barack Obama winning, for example, the EU winning as a champion of peace, Yasser Arafat, the, the Adolf Hitler joke. The real problem is when you look at the Nobel Prizes, 876 prizes have gone to men and 58 to women. And when you take out peace and literature, it gets far worse. You have 12 women who have won the medicine prize, seven who have won the chemistry prizes, uh, three of those, by the way, in the last three years, um, and four women in 120 years who have won for physics. And uh, of the women who have won for physics, um, two of them were named Curie. So it's just this astonishing evident bias. Um, You do have some uh, winners from uh, Africa, um, but almost, again, this is is one of those things. When you look at who's won from Africa, the answer is a white South African uh, was the first winner. Uh, in medicine and physiology. You do have um, um, uh, Hamid Zavell, um from Egypt who wins. You've got a couple of winners from South America. Um, you have a handful from Asia, uh, a couple from India um, who have won it. Um, but really, the problem is because it is being awarded by white guys from Sweden, essentially, it's going to Europeans, and that means North America, um, Europe, and, uh, and occasionally Australia as well. Gosh, I mean the you know the the lack of the lack of diversity in terms of of countries they're looking to and, and ethnicities aside with, with the the women is this is this the problem of the the committee who are awarding or is it 
part of a larger problem of of getting women into STEM subjects and getting them into science? Are they there? Are they there and working and being ignored or are they just not there to be considered? Well, I'll give you a great example of that. So I mentioned Otto Hahn, who won for nuclear fission. Uh, He was doing the lab work and he sent it over to a colleague of his, a woman called Lise Meitner in Sweden, and said, I don't really understand what's happened here. Can you explain it? And Lise Meitner came up with a theory. Lise Meitner was nominated 48 times for the Nobel Prize and never won. Otto Hahn got the Nobel Prize on his own. Right. I'm going to smash my lab up (laughs) right now. Um, I think that's that's the clearest illustration I, I can give you. Um, but when I can name sort of the the women, you know, just just off the top of my head, when the you know the chemistry prizes, you can go for sort of Jennifer Dardner and uh, Emmanuel Charpentier, um, uh, Francis Arnold, uh, Ada Yonat, Dorothy Hodgkin from the UK, um, Marie Curie. You know, I can just name them straight away. The fact that I can do that. And when you're looking at 876 guys, most of whom I've never heard of, and, and many of who their prizes, you kind of look at it and go, really? Is that, is that the best we could have done that year? Um, there's a famous example where the committee was kind of split on who should get the prize. There were some big names out there. And in the end, they gave it to a guy who designed a slightly better lighthouse. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying lighthouses aren't important. Very. They're going to but... change humanity. We exactly improving on the lighthouse probably doesn't change humanity in the way that uh, that someone like Mahatma Gandhi had an impact. Um, so there is always these controversies. And bear in mind, we are dealing with with humans. We're dealing with people. Um, I think there is an increased awareness that they've got biases in there and they're looking to address them. But only recently there was a massive controversy with the literature prize um, and uh, and who won it and some of the problematic stuff with that particular individual. Um, I'm not gonna go into sort of details there. And we actually got into a situation where the literature prize wasn't awarded one year um, because everything got really, really tense and awkward. Um, In fact, I was in Sweden when that was all happening. Um, So we are still struggling with this, this idea of the Nobel Prize. The other problem is that because people look at the Nobel Prize as the be all and end all, as this Oscars, if you will, of science, it gives a very distorted view of what science is actually like. It ignores the fact that we have these collaborations where hundreds of people are working these days across multiple countries, men and women. um, How are you going to narrow? I mean, obviously it's got to go to someone who come up with the COVID vaccine, hasn't it? Sooner or later. Mm. But how are you going to narrow that down? Well, that's one of the big problems. And and you're absolutely right. So the favourite this year for winning either in medicine or probably more likely uh, chemistry um, was uh, was looking at the actual vaccines and uh, and the uh, the mRNA vaccines, and the challenge they've got there is how do you pick three people mm. in a global effort? And these vaccines are going to be incredibly important in the future. They are going to revolutionise medicine. There is no question that they are worthy of the Nobel Prize, and yet it because it's difficult to pick three individuals, it may well be that we never get it. Um, that was one of the worries with John Goodenough, who did his battery work in 1980. Um, and the fact that he won it, uh, you know, what, three years, two, two, three years ago now, um, age 97, really speaks volumes for, I mean, a lot of people thought that he was going to die before he, uh, he won it. Um, and such is the case also with another woman scientist, Mildred Dresselhaus. Mm-hmm. Everyone was kind of hoping that she was going to win it and, um, and she passed away before she could. 
So you get this very pernicious effect, this sort of Nobel Prize glitter, and it just doesn't reflect how science is done these days. I think it's actually doing more harm than good now. Do you think they'll modernise? Do you think they could? Do you think they could sit down and say, "Do you know what this rule of three doesn't represent the way that science is conducted today? We're going to do away with that." I think they could have done that a long time ago, but they haven't. Um, and certainly, there is pushback from the committee. They don't want to do that. They feel that they should be awarding individuals in the same way that the Academy Awards do that. Um, it's a tricky one. Again, it's, I guess with Academy Awards, you, when you get sort of best film or something like that, there's only a certain number of people who can come up and collect it. It's not for the whole collective. So you, you get that equally when you know, there are thousands of people who work on any given movie and they all do their jobs uh, commendably. So I think the Nobel Prize is probably going to stay as it is. And we're seeing increasingly other prizes that are the other problem with the other prizes that are emerging as rivals for the Nobel, things like, you know, the Moonshot Prize, etc. Again, they have those same problems of, of sort of biases and what partic- people are particularly looking for rather than awarding who has done the greatest good. And when you look at what Alfred Nobel set out to do, um, you know, over 100 years ago, 150 odd years ago now, probably when he came up with the plan, um, looking at his autobiography in, 19, in 1888. We've drifted away from what he wanted, I think. Um, So, why is it still important? It's still important because of the prestige, because of the fact that it makes your name. And if you win the Nobel Prize, no one can take that away from you. It It is that glittering icon. And I know people who have driven in their entire careers, they've actually worked, gone into areas that they think they can win the Nobel Prize in. Rather than going into a scientific area that's already just won the Nobel Prize, but is probably blowing up and it's going to be really important they've moved into something where they think that they can work a little bit across purposes maybe and they have a chance of winning the nobel prize by starting up a new area so people are trying to game the system almost you get very strange responses well i know someone who is a regular favorite for the nobel prize so if you came up with a list of five chemists you can probably list about two of them who every year people think are probably going to win the nobel prize or they should get one and I was speaking to one of them once, and I asked, uh, asked them, I won't say gender, um, where they were working in a particular university. And they told me instantly, they gave me an answer where their office was. And they lied. They, they lied about the building. They named a more prestigious building than the one they were really in. And we both knew it. And I was like, why, why are you doing this? And, and, and the answer is it's perception. It's trying to... To, to nudge along and win the Nobel Prize. Um, so it's a strange situation when you get into that kind of world where you're almost kind of constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering if you're going to win and when you're going to win. Um, and again, I just don't see how that benefits science or, or it benefits the purpose of the Nobel Prizes. On that note, I ju- I've got just this mental image in my head now of that guy that you mentioned that smashes up the lab. Um, <laughs> That's basically Tom Cruise every time the Oscar nominations come out. <laughs> it should have been me. Uh, if he can jump on the sofa at sofa, he can probably smash something. He seems like a nice man. I'm sure he's he's, he's got some interesting beliefs, but uh, leave yeah. Tom alone. I mean, he's a crackpot, but yeah. <laughs> not hurting anyone, maybe. Kit, thank you so much. This has been epic. I knew nothing about this. I just knew that it was impressive if you had one. Uh, I didn't know that they could also be git bags or that actually 
like you say, people are gaming the system and that actually there's, it's not really a meritocracy either, which is interesting. Science is always, there are so many people who say, you know, keep politics out of science. Science is always political. Do not believe for a moment that science is ever divorced from politics. Says Kit, who's now going to go and smash up his lab because he's not winning a prize today, are you, Kit? You're not going to give me a prize for coming on? Yeah. Uh, supported now. The well, winner is yeah. Kit Chapman. <laughs> Brilliant. We can we can send you a care package of cake and English <laughs> wherever you are. In Sounds the world. good. Brilliant. Kit, thanks so much. No problem. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.